Good morning. This is Jake Brown, and I'm the preacher at Liberty Christian Church in beautiful Madison, Indiana. We meet every Sunday at 10.30 a.m., and you can find us at 8774 North U.S. Highway 421, Madison, Indiana. We love to meet new people, and we love to make ourselves available to help others learn the true story of who Jesus is what he did, why he did it, and how to personally get in on the story. Well, it's just about time for the sermon to start, so turn up the volume, tune out the distractions, and it's my prayer that you find this morning's message engaging and meaningful. Rarely is something exciting and idle at the same time. And... Never is something productive and idle at the same time. Years ago, I test drove a 2010 Super Sport Camaro. Now, first of all, I've got to say, praise the Lord for a good wife who saw the pure insanity of even considering a purchase like that. But I do have to say this about the experience. Probably my favorite part of that car, that test drive, was the sound. Obviously, going through all six gears on that 6.2 liter supercharged V8 sounded sweet. But the thing that gave me goosebumps, the thing that probably was the most exciting to me was just turning over that engine for the first time and just hearing that low rumble. That was mean. That was tough. That was exciting to me. But this isn't really the case with any other situation, right? I mean, rarely can something be idle and exciting because idle is doing nothing. Idle is not accomplishing anything. Webster says that idle is doing nothing, remaining unused, vain, ineffectual, unfruitful, not productive of good, of no importance, unprofitable, not tending to edification. I guess like that Camaro I test drove, idle can sometimes impress some people, but idle doesn't actually get you anywhere. It's still, as Webster says, remaining unused. It's still not performing its intended purpose. If you read through 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 enough, I have found that Paul makes it abundantly clear that Christians should have nothing to do with idleness. And so that's the title of today's message, Have Nothing to Do with Idleness. We're going to see that as members of the Lord's church, we are called to be active, not idle. And we're also going to see that that's not just some clever, inspirational, motivational quip of some kind. This is an actual calling from God toward every person who dares to follow Christ toward salvation. So we're going to jump right into the text this morning. And we're going to just work through, uh, verse by verse, three main lessons that we see here in in Paul's uh, closing remarks to the Thessalonians. Lesson number one is this have nothing to do with idleness in kingdom work. Have nothing to do with idleness in kingdom work. Look at verse one. He says, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. Paul is asking for prayer here, obviously, not only for himself, but also for Silas and Timothy, right? He says, pray for us. Those are the other guys that he's talking about. He's talking about pray for Paul, Silas, and Timothy. But Although he says pray for us, the thing that he actually wants them to pray for is the effectiveness of the gospel, that it would spread rapidly. Now, now those words, spread rapidly, are, are actually, those words are actually just the way that the translators have translated one single Greek word that actually means, literally means, to run along. 
That's certainly far from idle, isn't it? He wants the gospel to run along. He wants the gospel to take off. He wants the gospel to go. He wants the gospel to run. Now, how does the gospel run? The gospel doesn't have its own set of literal uh, legs and feet to run on. So how does the gospel run? With you and me, right? Jesus said in Mark chapter 16, verse 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Go and preach sounds like active, not idle to me. So Paul says, pray that the gospel would go, that it would run along, that it would spread rapidly. And, verse 2, he says, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. So we see that there's some risk in being active. There's risk in running along, spreading the gospel. This is obviously, likely, I guess, why some won't run along with the gospel. And it almost sounds sarcastic, as Paul says, for not all have faith. Kind of one of these duh moments, maybe. (laughs) Paul had run into his fair share of perverse and evil men as he was running along with the gospel. Men who did not have faith. People had attacked Paul for his preaching. They tried to stone him to death. They knocked down doors trying to find him. They plotted to kill him. So there is risk in being active for the Lord. There's greater risk, though, in being idle. The Bible commands and commends diligence while condemning idleness. So we can't let the risk of we can't let the risk cause us to be idle. You and I need to be active in kingdom work. And we need to pray like Paul to be rescued from perverse and evil men, right? Do the work, be active and trust God. Pray to God to for the protection. Verse 3. But the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. So not everyone out there has faith or will ever choose to have faith. Some are perverse and and evil out there. But the Lord is faithful. Paul had full confidence in the Lord to strengthen and protect the Thessalonians. And, And let me tell you something. The Lord will always strengthen and protect those who are faithful to him. He promised that he'll be with us as we go. He didn't promise to be with us as we idle, though. Verse 4, Paul says, We have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. Paul was confident that the Thessalonians were doing what they had been commanded in the Lord to do. These Christians in Thessalonica were active in obeying the Lord, and Paul was confident that they would continue doing what they were commanded to do. Their example, their performance so far, indicated to Paul that he could be confident that they would continue to do what they had been commanded to do. Well, like the Thessalonians, we are also expected to be busy for Christ. And I'm telling you, we should be busy in the Lord in such a way that it is evident to others that we are not only doing what we've been commanded to do, but we will continue to do what we're commanded to do. That's not idle. That's active. Look at verse 5. He says, May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Now, I love what Paul's saying here, but I want you to know these aren't just some pretty poetic words here. These phrases mean something. The love of God does not equal inactivity or or idleness, right? That's not what Paul wants them to be directed into when he says he prays that their hearts will be directed into the love of God. What is the love of God biblically? Let's define it using the Bible. 1 John chapter 5 verse 3 says this. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. 2 John 
verse 6. There, there's no chapters in 2 John, just a small little book. 2 John verse 6 says, And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. Keeping his commandments, that's the love of God. And this is Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians. Now, keeping commandments is not a one-time thing or an idle thing, right? It is a regular practice. Keeping something, keeping a set of rules, keeping a set of instructions is not doing one thing one time. It's a regular practice. Just like uh, the 2 the John verse 6 passage said, walk according to his commandments. Walk. This term is not a, a one-time thing. This term means a regular practice. This is a consistent activity. Now, the, the, the second phrase that's used there that Paul wants their hearts to be directed into is the steadfastness of Christ. We, we also see that in verse 5, right? The steadfastness of Christ. This is also not an idle thing. Steadfastness is translated elsewhere as endurance, and perseverance, which means unswerved from purpose and loyalty of faith, even by the greatest trials and sufferings. Now that right there is a description of steadfastness that Christ exemplified in his life here on earth. Paul's prayer was that the Lord would direct them into the steadfastness of Christ, that they would be steadfast like Christ was. Christ had nothing to do with idleness when it came to kingdom work. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. No deed was too demanding. He didn't even appraise his own life as more valuable than laboring obediently for the kingdom of God. When it comes to kingdom work, we need to have nothing to do with idleness. Instead, we need to focus on living out the love of God and laboring with the steadfastness of Christ, doing all that we can rather than as little as we can. Lesson number two here is have nothing to do with idleness in brothers and sisters in Christ. Have nothing to do with idleness in brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at verse six now. He says, now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. Paul commands the Thessalonians here to withdraw from their idle brothers and sisters in Christ. He says unruly and not according to the tradition which they received from him. But in the next few verses, Paul's going to explain in no uncertain terms exactly what this unruly, undisciplined life looks like. And guess what? It's idle. It's not productive. It's not working. It's not being active. It's not fulfilling basic responsibilities. Look at verse 7. He says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. So the Thessalonians have been taught by Paul, Silas, and Timothy that they were supposed to be following the example that they witnessed. The example of Paul, Silas, and Timothy, by the way, was not one of idleness. He says here in verse 7 that they didn't act in an undisciplined manner. And verse 8, look at verse 8 now, he says, Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Paul, Silas, and Timothy say here, Paul says here of the three of them that they did not uh, receive bread from people without paying for it. Now, this is a, a Hebrew phrase meaning they didn't take handouts. This, this, when they say bread, they don't just mean the actual uh, bread, but they mean 
food, drink, supplies, the necessities of daily life. They didn't get this stuff as handouts from people without paying for it, without working for it. They worked, it says, day and night. They did that so that they could preach and teach everybody and provide for their own personal necessities. They likely taught one-on-one and in groups every day during the day and then worked at night to be able to provide for the basic necessities of life uh, that they had. Food, drink, supplies, so on. And listen to this. Look at verse 9. Not because, Paul says, not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy didn't have to do this. These guys had every right to receive the things that they needed for their physical well-being in exchange for them providing to the Thessalonians the things that they needed for their spiritual well-being. Paul even taught this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 14. He said, the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Paul, Silas, and Timothy worked as they did and provided for themselves as they did as an example for the Thessalonians. See, they wanted the Thessalonians to to see what the work looked like that they were called to do. Their new Christian lives were not going to allow for the common Greek understanding that work was for someone else to do. Guys, no one else can obey the gospel for you. No one else can love one another for you. No one else can be steadfast for you. No one else can be faithful for you. Verse 10, Paul says, For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. So notice from this verse that this is not new information. Paul, Silas, and Timothy gave them this order multiple times in person when they were there with them in Thessalonica. Look at verse 11. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. So here is further explanation of what this undisciplined life looked like that Paul has been addressing here. The undisciplined life is doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now, while, while Paul, Silas, and Timothy were in Corinth uh, at the time of this letter being written, at the time that Paul is having this letter written, uh, they were in Corinth and they were apparently, they were obviously hearing about the idleness of some of the Thessalonians. Uh, they were hearing that at least some of these Christians back in Thessalonica were living an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, acting like busybodies. Guys, undisciplined does not describe the Christian life, not as it's prescribed in the Bible, I mentioned it before, many Greeks held the general attitude that work was to be done by slaves, that work was only to be done by slaves. But Jesus was a carpenter. Peter was a fisherman. Paul was a tent maker. Christians have to come to grips with the fact that our heroes of the faith weren't somehow spiritually active, but physically idle. Faithful men and women in the Bible worked for their bread. They worked to provide for themselves and for their families. They were willing to do that. Now, the result of these Thessalonians who were living undisciplined lives, doing no work at all, the result of of that style of living was that they became busybodies, Paul says. It's very common for those who uh, forsake their own responsibilities to become inordinately unnecessarily and unconstructively involved in the concerns of others. That is a busybody. Your nose is in everybody's business but your own. You're focused on everybody else's uh, issues, concerns, affairs, 
except your own. Some of the Thessalonians were being busybodies instead of simply being busy. That, that's a, the short way to put it. We need to take note of what a serious issue this was, what a serious problem this was, the time that Paul spent on this, the multiple times in his two letters that he wrote to them that we have, uh, that, that he spent writing to them uh, about this, the importance, the emphasis that God is putting on this for us to see this and read this and know about this. We don't want to be busybodies, and it's very important that we withdraw from these idle busybodies. In verse 12, Paul says, now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. So here's Paul's command for busybodies who, who might be hearing this letter being read. And let me tell you, that was the intention, that they, that they would hear this, that they would know this. They are commanded and exhorted, Paul says, in the Lord Jesus Christ to work and provide for themselves. So look at the, the emphasis Paul's putting here. Uh, any, any command that comes out of the mouth of an apostle was to be taken as having the authority of Jesus Christ, inspired by him. But he puts it out there and says that these people are commanded and exhorted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's make sure that there's no misunderstanding here, right? They need to work and provide for themselves. And Paul says, work in a quiet fashion. This is Paul's way of saying, quit being a busybody. Quit gossiping. Quit talking about others. Quit busy, busying yourselves with the affairs of other people. A, a paraphrase of this command might say, shut up and work. That may not be the most loving way to put it, but that's probably accurate. Shut up and work. In verse 13, Paul says, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. So here is a, a word to those who were busying themselves, taking care of their own responsibilities and doing good for others. He says, don't even begin to get tired of doing what you know is right. I know our English translations don't bring that out, but that's what Paul says. That's the words that he used in the original Greek, that's the meaning. Don't even begin to get tired of doing what you know is right. Don't even start down that path. He's not saying when you get to that last straw and you're just hanging on by a thread, you know, hey, hey, climb back up. Don't, don't give up completely. No, he says don't even start to grow weary of doing good. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul said, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Guys, even though others don't do good like you are doing, perhaps, even though others may not regularly practice the good works that God has commanded of all of us, even though most will not appreciate the good that you do, don't lose heart. Don't give up. Don't even start to grow weary. Don't even give it a thought. You're doing good for the Lord. He's your master. He's your Lord. He's the one that, that motivates you. There's no reason to grow tired of doing good because the Lord will reward us for our faithfulness. There's no logical concern that, you know, it, it might not be worth it. Keep being active, not idle. In verse 14, Paul says, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. So, so make note of the idle ones and don't associate with them, Paul says. Don't keep giving a drunk a drink. Don't keep giving the addict the drug. Don't keep enabling them. But do this for their own good. The shame is to draw them back onto the right path, the path of disciplined living, working in a quiet fashion and eating their own bread. This isn't talking about uh, shaming someone the way that that phrase is so often used today. 
we need to withdraw from these ones in a way that causes them to recognize that they're doing something wrong. Sometimes people have to feel it. Sometimes people have to feel a, a little pain. They need to feel a, a little discomfort. They need to feel a little bit lonely before they'll stop and consider their behavior. Verse 15 says, yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. This would be more accurately translated as and do not regard them as an enemy because this is not in contrast. This is not a but do this or yet to do this. This is not a contrast to what's being said. This is a, a, a statement that is, that is in harmony with what's said and do not regard them as an enemy. Warn them as a brother or sister, right? Not as an enemy, Always, 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 when we see in the scriptures that someone who is in sin, we, we need to withdraw from them. Anytime we see in scripture that we need to, to take a step back and leave this person alone, or you might even say shun them in a, in a, in a way, in a, in a certain sense. Anytime we see that command, that teaching in the Bible, it's always with the motivation to restore them. It's always to be done with a spirit of restoration, to bring them back on to the path. But be sure to obey this command. Have nothing to do with idleness in brothers and sisters in Christ. Third and final lesson, have nothing to do with idleness because the Lord is with us. Have nothing to do with idleness because the Lord is with us. If you look at verse 16 here, look at the, the end of verse 16 with me first. He says, the Lord be with you all. The Lord promised to always be with us, didn't he? In Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus said there that as we go and make disciples and baptize them and teach them, he will always be with us. Guys, when the Lord is with you, there's no excuse for being idle. And now back up to the beginning of verse 16, he says, now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. I want to focus just for a second at the beginning of that, where he says that Jesus is the Lord of peace. That's who the Lord of peace is, Jesus. Now, he's more than just the Lord of a peaceful feeling. You need to know that. He's the Lord of actual peace. He sets us free from sin. He sets us free to do good. He reconciles us to God the Father. He paid the price of sin that we owed. He rose from death so that we could have eternal life. He redeemed us. He doesn't just make us feel warm and fuzzy. He doesn't just make us feel good. He makes us good. What I'm trying to say is that the Lord of peace is the Lord who doesn't just create a feeling of peace. He created actual peace for us. We were once rebels. Now we're reconciled. We were once rebels. Now we're redeemed. Only the Lord of peace can do that. And then that, that next part of verse 16, uh, after uh, he says, now may the Lord of peace himself uh, continually grant you peace in every circumstance. He can grant us peace in every circumstance. And the peace of the Lord is not something that's dependent upon what we're going through at a particular time. It's not dependent upon our circumstances. Because of what the Lord of peace has done uh, for us in redeeming us and reconciling us to the Father, it doesn't matter what we face. It doesn't matter if we're persecuted. It doesn't matter if we have to go through afflictions. Come what may, we have this eternal inheritance that just makes all of it feel momentary and light. In comparison, the Lord of peace himself is able to continually grant us peace in every circumstance. So there's no reason to have anything to do with idleness. Be active because the Lord is going with you. The Lord is always with us. Paul's conclusion to 2 Thessalonians is found in verses 17 and 18. He said, I, Paul, 
write this greeting with my own hand. And this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I think it's abundantly clear as we've studied over the last several weeks through the eight chapters uh, that make up First and Second Thessalonians, the two letters that we have that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. I think it's abundantly clear from Paul's words that Paul loved the Thessalonians. Paul wanted to see the Thessalonians sanctified. Paul wanted to see the Thessalonians faithful to the very end, to the day that the Lord Jesus Christ returned for his church. Paul wanted the grace of the Lord to be with each one of them. And this is my prayer for each and every one of you as well. As we finish things up here this morning, I'd like to ask those of you listening on the radio right now, have you obeyed the gospel? Before you answer that, let's make sure we know what the gospel is. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So the gospel is the power of God for salvation. But what is it? What is the gospel? We know what it does. We know uh, the power that it holds. But what is the gospel? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, the Bible interprets itself here. The, the Apostle Paul writes, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So, there are three main statements that make up the gospel. Christ died for our sins, Christ was buried, Christ was raised on the third day. The Bible teaches us that his death paid the price for our sin, and his resurrection made eternal life possible for us. So now that we understand what the gospel is, let's get back to our question, how do we obey the gospel? I want to read Romans chapter 6, just verses 3 and 4 for you, and I want you to listen and see if you can hear all three parts of the gospel being played out here, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. The Bible says here in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Did you catch that? Did, did you find the three parts of the gospel there? When we are baptized, the Bible says, we are baptized into Christ's death. When we are baptized, the Bible says, we are buried with Christ. And finally, when we are baptized, we are raised up as Christ was raised from the dead so that we too will walk in newness of life. Now folks, the Bible makes it clear you must believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. Jesus is the Christ, the one who would come to save us from our sins. He is the son of the living God. He himself is God, one of the three distinct personalities that make up God. He is God the Son who came to earth in human form. 
Folks, we must hear the gospel and believe it. We must trust Jesus completely. We must make a distinct turn away from sinful living and toward God's holiness and righteousness. The Bible calls this change in our behavior, repentance. We must confess our belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And of course, we must obey the gospel through baptism. That's where we're immersed in water by the authority of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is indeed where we are baptized into Christ's death, into his burial, and raised up to newness of life by the power of God, the same power that raised Jesus from death. And Acts 2.38 and Acts 22.16 make it clear that at our baptism, our sins are forgiven, washed away. 1 Peter 3.21 literally says, baptism saves us. Galatians 3.26-27 teaches us that through faith, and as a result of our baptism, we become children of God, clothed with Christ. If you haven't obeyed the gospel, keep listening, and we'll tell you how you can get in touch with us in just a moment. I'm Jake Brown, and on behalf of the church, I want to thank you for listening to today's broadcast. If you'd like to get in touch with us, just call 812-273-1518. Or you can also reach out to us on Facebook by searching for Liberty Christian Church, Madison, Indiana. Or you can send us a message directly from our website, www.liberty christian.com. But again, we'd love to have you join us in person if you're physically able to do so. We love you, God loves you, and it is our prayer that he will bless you this week as you seek his truth.